Good morning. How's everybody doing out there? All right. It's good to, ha- good to have you all here today. Grandparents Day. Hey, one more time. Grandparents, we love you. Would all the grandparents stand so that we can recognize you today? All you grandparents, stand up right now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, boy, my grandparents had an inspirational uh, effect on my life. Uh, I wouldn't be who I am today without their influence. And I know that you as well have that influence on your grandchildren. So don't ever uh, underestimate uh, the love and the care that a grandparent can provide for their grandkids. Uh, your, your influence is invaluable. I want you to open up your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, as a matter of fact. Go ahead and uh, start, start meandering over there. Uh, Book of Romans, if you don't have a Bible, grab one in the pew back in front of you. You'll want to be bringing your Bibles for the next uh, series because we're going to be looking at this book. And I wanted to to begin by uh, just letting you know uh, how, how long it took for me to come to choose this series in Romans. Uh, I've, I've, ta- I've shared with uh, uh, Corey and Doug and Tom before how, how one of the most difficult things that I have in my life I- I- as a pastor is to try and figure out what does the church need next in terms of teaching? What does the church need next in terms of, of teaching from God's Word? And I'm, I'm always uh, just scouring the Scriptures trying to identify a book or, or a topic or a selection that would just be the absolute right fit for our needs right here and right now. And I wanna, I'll be honest with you, um, I, I agonized over this selection this fall. I went left and right. Uh, I was looking all throughout the Word uh, having uh, really an unsettled feeling for quite some time, uh, agonizing over it, praying over it, trying to figure out what God would have me do. And uh, it was not long ago uh, when I finally felt, I really felt led by the Spirit of God to teach Romans. And the day that I selected that in my head, the moment and the day that I said, Okay, Lord, it's, it's Romans. It's going to be Romans from here on out for, for probably the next year of our church. The day that happened uh, and the week that followed, the days that followed, it was uncanny uh, how many spiritual attacks and, and physical attacks came into our home and our life. Casey can attest to the fact that it was not long after I had selected Romans and she knew how much I was, I was just praying over this and agonizing over this. And when I finally said, okay, Lord, here it is, uh, we had a major plumbing issue take place at our church. All of a sudden, the toilet just totally backed up. And on that note, let me switch microphones. Testing, one, two. Testing, one, two, three. Almost got it. There we go. All right. The days following my selection of Romans, we had spiritual attacks in our family. The, the, and, and you may say, oh, come on, it's just coincidence. I can assure you it wasn't. We had the plumbing break. Uh, we had a range of emotions. We had one night where Bennett and Mallory almost didn't sleep the entire night in our home. And really, they're amazing sleepers. My kids, you know, God bless them, they sleep through the night like crazy. And there was just this one night, and especially this past week, where they, neither of them would go to bed in our house. And it happened to be on a night that I was studying for this. Um, I could tell you other stories and instances and things that have happened since selecting the book of Romans. And I believe that the enemy doesn't want this church, doesn't want me, doesn't want you to walk through this book. I believe that, and it's happened to me before, 
when I am prayerfully agonizing over a decision and when I come to it, I find that nine times out of ten, that next week, that next month is a difficult month for me and my family. And the same is true here. It's, uh, we've not had an easy week or two in our family. I've had a lot of sleepless nights, a range of emotions. It's, it's been troublesome. But you know what it tells me? It tells me that I picked the right book. It tells me that the Lord has spoken and He wants us as a church family to go through the epistle to the Romans. I believe that. And I hope you believe that. And so what I'm going to ask from you in the next weeks and months and the next year is probably going to be about a year of study, maybe a tad longer. I want you to bring your Bibles. I don't want you to rely on, on grabbing a pew I don't want you to rely on the text up here. I want you to bring a Bible. I want you to bring a pen. I want you to get ready to study the Word and to take the precious truths of God and put them in our hearts and put them in our minds. You know, our melting pot small group, our, our young adult small group, we're going through a book right now called The Kingdom Triangle. And it's a book by J.P. Moreland. He's a Christian philosopher and theologian, one of the preeminent Christian philosophers in our nation, really. And in, in the book, toward the end of the first chapter, Moreland cites a verse. Uh, he, he, the, the, the message of his book is to say Christians need to recover their intellectuality, the, 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 the intellectual mind. They need to recover a Christian mind. They need to be smart. They need to be wise. They need to be knowledgeable about their faith. That's one of his, his primary points. And he's saying the world, the world views, the perspectives out there, naturalism, postmodernism, all, all these things are competing against the ideas of Scripture. They're competing against the truth of God. And he cites one passage in 2 Corinthians 10. It says this in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are destroying speculations, ideas that are not of Christ. And every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge, the true knowledge of God. Moreland goes on to comment on, on page 37 of his book. He says, Paul describes here the core of spiritual warfare as a struggle of ideas, a conflict of worldviews. The core of spiritual warfare. A conflict of ideas, worldviews clashing against one another. Because what comes here... What comes in here is expressed. And so if we are not guarding our minds, if we are not filling our minds with the truths of God, then we're going to lose that battle. But if we are filling our minds and filling our hearts with the truth of God, the knowledge of God, we will be equipped to destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. I, I submit to you that there are ideas in the book of Romans that are divinely powerful for destroying fortresses. There are ideas and truths in the book of Romans that are divinely powerful and profound that can cut down speculations and arrogant, lofty ideals. There are ideas in this book that can significantly equip the Christian for understanding living and articulating his or her faith. Romans is a powerful Word of God. And it does not surprise me in the least that the moment I endeavored to teach this book, I experienced great trials, sleepless nights, particularly in these last days. And so I'm going to suggest to you that because we are going to be teaching a book that espouses the truth of God perhaps like no other. The enemy of God is recognizing that we are taking the truths of God and we're about to combat, go to, go to bat with the worldviews out in our culture. I submit to you that, that he doesn't want that to happen, 
that He's going to do all He can to take this away from us, to distract us, to, to move us away from the Word. But I'm asking you to pray, to pray with me, to ask God to bless this study, to ask Him to give us all mutual edification and understanding that we might be equipped to reach our culture. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, I, for one, uh, sense the gravity of, uh, of this moment. Uh, Father, you have, you have selected this book. I believe that, Lord. Uh, I know, uh, Lord, uh, over these last months that, uh, that I've been thinking about this day for a long time. And Lord, I was so undecided and, and now You have shown it, Father. You've brought it forth. You've said Romans. And I pray that You would be present now as we study this book, as we dive into this, this precious book, a powerful and profound letter to the church at Rome. Lord, help us to be a people who earnestly seeks Your truth that we might be equipped to destroy fortresses of knowledge that is against the knowledge of God. Lord, guide us in this study. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding. Give us clarity. Help us to see this book in a whole new light. Let us set aside preconceptions. Let us approach it afresh, reliant on Your Spirit for understanding. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. The Epistle to the Romans. The Epistle to the Romans. What is this book? How many of you have read the book of Romans? Raise your hand if you've ever read it through one time. Alright, good. For those of you that have and those of you that haven't, I want you to read it through. I want you to read it through this week. You know what? It won't take you very long. You could probably read it through in 40 minutes in one setting. So it doesn't take that long to read. This is a powerful and profound book, as I've been saying. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a wonderful, wonderful background to this book. Of course, we want to get through some of the basics. And here are some of the basics. The author of the book of Romans is Paul. Thank you very much. The Apostle Paul. Paul wrote Romans. Very, very clear. It's undisputed in, uh, in scholarly circles. Uh, the date of the composition, the date that he wrote this book was approximately 56 or 57 A.D. A couple people might say 58 A.D., uh, but not much of an issue there. It was in the mid to late 50s. It was uh, probably in the middle of Paul, all of Paul's writings. He wrote uh, you know, Galatians and, and uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians and 1 and 2 Corinthians and then came Romans. And then the rest. And so Romans kind of is in the middle of Paul's writings. It's, it's uh, it, right in the center of his thinking and ministry and teaching. He wrote to this church and he calls it, you're going to see later on as we begin studying, uh, particularly next week, he calls this church just a, a thriving church. He says in verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. This is a church that is thriving that is more or less a, a healthy church, reliant on Christ, and they are growing, they are moving forward. But we might ask the question, who founded the church at Rome? Who founded the church at Rome? See, because Paul was going to say in his letters, he says, hey, I haven't been there. I don't, I, I've never met most of you in Rome, he's, as he's writing to them. He's never been there. In fact, no apostle had ever been there. Peter hadn't been there yet. None of the disciples of Jesus Christ had gone on to Rome to plant this church. And so we might often wonder, well, how in the world did that church get started? Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts 2 real quick here. Acts chapter 2, and it's not on the screen. I'm going to do this purposefully this, this in the next year. I'm going to leave some verses off the screen so that I can hear this. Alright? I want to hear that. That's what I want to hear. Acts chapter 2. And uh, we, here we are in Acts chapter 2. We are looking at uh, the... We're looking at the day of Pentecost. Peter, the apostle, is about to preach to all the nations who have been gathered there the truths of Jesus Christ. And he says this in... Uh, it says this in verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews... 
devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the, the, the coming of the Spirit, the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language and they were amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are, these, are not all these uh, who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Verse 9, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, these are the people that were there. Those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Oh, there it is. Visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes. How did the church of Rome get started? It is quite conceivable. In fact, we, we may very much presume that the church in Rome started, despite the fact that no apostle had been there. Paul hadn't gone yet. Peter hadn't gone yet. None of the twelve had gone. Jesus had never been. It's quite possible that on the day of Pentecost, not long after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, visitors from Rome came to hear Peter preach, were converted, and went back and planted a church. That's how the church of Rome most likely got started. And that's, 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 that's pretty remarkable. It's pretty remarkable to think about it. Just, just happening to, to be in Jerusalem at the time, and, and, and they come and they hear and they, they're converted. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. And they go back to Rome and they say, you're not going to believe what we just learned in Jerusalem. It's quite possible this is how the church in Rome got started. Turn over also quickly to Acts 18. Acts 18. There's another couple that's quite significant in the church in Rome. It says this in Acts 18, beginning in verse 1. Acts 18, verse 1. It says this, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, Paul stayed with them and worked, uh, for by occupation they were tent makers. So here we have in Acts 18, the Apostle Paul meeting two people, Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife, for the first time. He meets them in Corinth, and it says they're from Italy, they're from Rome. And it goes on to say, as, as you continue to read the story, that Aquila and Priscilla were believers. The time of this was, in Acts chapter 18, was somewhere around uh, late 40s, early 50s. A little bit before Paul wrote Romans. And so we see here the church in Rome is thriving. There are people coming from it that are growing in Christ. But notice something interesting about verse 2. And this will give us a backdrop of Romans. Notice something about verse 2. It says, uh, Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. What's that all about? Who's Claudius? And how did he have the authority to tell all the Jews to depart from Rome? Well, this brings up a very, very uh, critical aspect of the epistle to the Romans. And that is this. Claudius was the Roman emperor. He was the Roman emperor. And in 49 A.D., I think i got a little timeline here. Excuse me, okay, 33 A.D., the church at Rome is born, Jew and Gentile Christians, a mixed bag in the church at Rome. Go on. 49 A.D., Claudius expels the Jews from Rome. So the emperor, the Caesar of Rome, Kicks them out. Why did he kick them out? Ah, there's different stories that go along uh, with that. Uh, I really, I don't want to get into all the theories. There's tons of theories as to why they were kicked out. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the, Claudius got upset with the Jews and booted them out of the country. Gee, heard that story before. A, a lot, actually. People say, well, come on now. The, the Jews of today are not the Jews of the Scriptures. Are, are you kidding? Are you kidding? They absolutely are. They absolutely are. Because it seems that every time we open the newspaper, the people of Israel are being persecuted on some level. And so here we have another element of persecution. Get out of our city. Get out. 
Claudius says. And so off they go, 49 A.D. They're expelled until 54 A.D. 54 A.D., Claudius dies and the Jews return. Now, stop and think for a minute. Okay, wait a minute. The church, 33 A.D., Jews and Gentile uh, uh, converts to Christ. They come back. They begin the church at Rome. Uh, the Jewish brethren really know a lot about those Old Testament Scriptures. So they're probably good leaders in the church. They're probably uh, helping the Gentile Christians understand the things from the Old Testament with the things of Christ. There are only a few New Testament letters that have been written. First and Second Thessalonians, Galatians. Maybe they've read First and Second Corinthians. Maybe those letters have trickled over to Rome. Maybe. So they have three to five books of the New Testament that might have been read by this church and the whole Old Testament. Who do you think are the primary leaders in that church? I would suggest to you it's the Jewish brethren. The Jewish brethren are the primary leaders of the church in Rome. Why? Because the predominant Scriptures that they were adhering to were still the Old Testament Scriptures. And the Jewish brethren, the Jewish converts to Christ, were having to teach the church at Rome how to understand them. And so what do you think happened in 49 A.D. when Claudius said, get out? I submit to you, the church in Rome had a rough five years. I submit to you, the church in Rome had a difficult time now only having Gentile believers understanding the Old Testament Scriptures, trying to piecemeal it all together, trying to understand, okay, what is it? What do we believe? What is the Christian faith? How do we live this? I submit to you that was a time of great chaos, uh, great frustration. And at the same time, I'm quite sure the Holy Spirit, being with the Gentiles, uh, used them in a mighty way and taught them and instructed them as the Holy Spirit does all of us. But imagine the church in Rome, no more than 16 years old, and now an integral group of the church, the Jewish Christians, are forced to leave Rome. They are gone five years and without the aid of their Jewish brethren, now the Gentile Christians are having to do church. The church inevitably is going to be taking on new characteristics, new style. Uh, I mean, just imagine for us, okay, imagine for a moment that everyone over the age of 18 years old were suddenly taken away from CBC. The epic youth group would take over. We would have teenagers preaching from the pulpit. God bless them. Sounds like fun, right? Well, don't forget, we would also leave them a huge amount of babies that we've all been birthing over these last few years. So it would be really fun for those epic youth group kids. They'd have to do some babysitting. But I mean, really, imagine if a whole contingency of the church was just booted. Start over. Start afresh. New leaders. New teachers. It would be so difficult. The church would take on a whole new look. Likewise, after five years of losing the Jewish brethren, the church at Rome took on a whole new look. And when the Jews returned in 54 A.D., what do you think happened to the church in Rome? What do you think might have occurred? Anybody? Any thoughts? A word or two. Fights. I heard fights. Anybody else? A split, maybe. Yeah. Some tension, right? I think that's only natural. That's only natural to assume. You have the leaders gone five years, now coming back and say, okay, we want our leadership again. Well, no, wait, wait a minute. We've, we've grown, we've learned, Spirit's been guiding us, we have our ways, you have, you know, okay. There was tension, there was fights, there was conflict in the church in Rome. And this is borne out by Romans 14 and 15, along with sections of Romans uh, chapter 2. We're going to see this in the book of Romans. There were some conflicts in the church in Rome when the Jewish Christians returned. And here's Paul. When does he write? 56, 57 A.D. Paul writes Romans. He's starting to see the pattern. He's starting to see the flow. They're so, the Scriptures, they're just, they're just not loosely thrown together. Paul just did, oh, that's, hey, let's write to Rome. No. He wrote for a reason. He wrote for a purpose. Paul started hearing stories. Man, that church in Rome, they're, they're, they're healthy, They've been strong, but there's some conflict. There's some fights right now. There's some tension. So Paul writes. 
He says, let me, let me chat with you. Let me refresh your hearts. Let me refocus. Paul's reading, Paul, what are Paul's reasons for writing to the church in Rome? I give you three. Number one, to mediate any tensions between Jewish and Gentile Christians and to spur on their unity. If you've got a, a, a pen, you might want to jot that down. To mediate any tensions between Jewish and Gentile Christians and to spur on their unity. Number two, and this is probably most predominant, to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a highly influential church. Think about it. They are at the heart of the Roman Empire. Do you suppose that Paul wants this church to succeed? Absolutely. What happens in Rome is going to go out to the ends of the earth. And so Paul knows how critical it is that he focus on this church, equip it, teach it, make sure that it is ready to go to send out missionaries and teachers to the nations. Paul knows how critical this church is to the success of Christianity. And thus, Romans is the longest letter by Paul. Third, and, and, and finally, there are others, but third, to inform them of his coming visit en route to Spain and anticipation for mutual edification. Paul says, hey, I'm going to come. I want to see you. I want to see you. And I also want to go on to Spain, which we don't know if Paul ever did. But that was his hope. That was his desire. And so Paul was heading to Rome en in, in route ultimately to Spain and he told them, I'm coming. I want to see you. I want to be mutually edified together. He wants to pick up some money and he wants to continue on to Spain, uh, among other things. He did need money. And he actually he'll say that in the book of Romans. We're going to see that in just a little bit. Now to the text. Here we go. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to go through this book slowly, and that's intentional. Uh, we're probably only going to be taking seven, eight verses at a time because this book is difficult if you take much more than that. So let's take a look at Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Introduction, right? This is who I am. I'm Paul. I'm writing to you a letter. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. First description. First description is, hey, I want you to know very clearly, I'm a slave. I'm a servant. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Secondly, called to be an apostle, separated to the Gospel of God. Do you notice that prior to speaking of his authority, Paul talks about his humility? And in this, we find the essence of Christian leadership. In this, we find the essence of, 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 of an elder, of a pastor, of a leader, of someone who's going to step up in front of the church and say, this is where we should go. That person needs to be a person of humility, of weakness, of meekness. Someone who would describe themselves as a bondservant. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. And within that, as my first and grounding understanding, this, from this flows my leadership. From this flows what God has called me to do. That I am serving Him. Paul is a bondservant first. An apostle second, separated to the gospel of God. True Christian authority begins in meekness. He is separated to the gospel of God. That is to say, he's set apart. We see this phrase so often in the scriptures, usually uh, having to do, uh, quite honestly, with the setting apart of the Holy Spirit for service. The Holy Spirit sets aside men and women for service in the church. And so here we have, uh, in, in a very real sense, as one scholar has put it, a very Trinitarian uh, verse 1. We have Paul, a bondservant of Christ, the Son, called to be an apostle, separated by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit, to the Gospel of God the Father. We have a very Trinitarian uh, initial verse there. Now what, now what about this word Gospel? Separated to the Gospel of God. Uh, I know we all have great preconceptions of this word Gospel. And uh, uh, surely, uh, each one of us, if I were to ask you right now, write down the definition of gospel. Uh, I, I would suggest that we'd probably have at least 40, 50 answers out there. Um, we, all, we all think we, we've learned it in Sunday school, and then, well, wait a minute, what does that word actually mean? Uh, 
in essence, at its core, at its basic element, the word gospel means good news. That's all it means. It means good news. Good news. Every time you see the gospel, you should plug in the words good news or glad tidings. You heard that before in, you know, when Jesus was about uh, being prophesied of his birth. Glad tidings, that's gospel in the book of Luke. Glad tidings, there's something good about to happen. And so here we have Paul, an apostle, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart to the good news of God. What is the good news of God? A lot of things are the good news of God. Primarily and chiefly, the good news of God is that by faith in Jesus Christ, you can live forever. First and foremost, of primary importance, the, 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 the first understanding of, of the Gospel, what is the good news of God? It is that by faith in Jesus Christ, you can live forever with God. Amen? Amen. But you know what? There are so many other Gospels in the New Testament. That is to say, that is to say, there are so many other good news statements. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, it talks about the gospel of everlasting judgment. Huh? The gospel of everlasting judgment? That is to say, there is good news that God is one day going to judge all men and women. And those sinners who have never been reconciled to Christ will be judged. In the book of Revelation, that's called gospel. That's called good news. And so we need to be careful as an audience, as people who open up our Bibles and we come to the word gospel, we need to be careful of immediately plugging into it the understanding that it's simply, well, the gospel is believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Sometimes. Sometimes the gospel means that. Other times the gospel means so much more than that. And so, uh, in fact, Jeremy Myers, uh, a, a friend of mine, um, he, he was uh, uh, formerly worked at GES, now he's a pastor, uh, I believe, uh, he and his wife. He's, just a, he's a student of God's Word. He's about my age, and he did a study on the word gospel, and he identified no less than 50, 50 different instances of what the gospel meant in the New Testament. 50. 50 different good news in the New Testament. Let's be careful with that word. Let's not use it lightly. Let's not put our preconceptions on it. Let's let the Word speak for itself. What is the Gospel of God? We're going to find out in the book of Romans. I would suggest to you it means a whole lot more than simply believing in Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news. More to come in the weeks ahead. So Paul, a bondservant of Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the good news of God. What is this good news? Verse 2, which he promised, God promised, before, through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Good news. God's promised something. He's promised it before in the prophets in the Old Testament Scriptures. Good news, Church of Rome. Good news, your Jewish brethren who are in your church, they know about this. Let them tell you about it. God has promised a coming Savior in the Old Testament Scriptures. The Old Testament prophets have testified of Jesus Christ. And I could list for you, and you could list for yourself, many verses that attest to that. Prior to the coming of Christ, it was prophesied. Good news. There's good news concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who is this Jesus? Who is this person who is good news? Paul says He was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Now, some people look at that statement there and they assume that, that one thing is in mind there, and that is the humanity of Jesus Christ. That's a fair statement. It seems to me that, that born of the seed of David according to the flesh would be uh, a statement about the humanity of Christ. But it's interesting why Paul would use kind of a, a, a double phrase there to speak of humanity. Isn't it sufficient to say that Christ's humanity is evidenced by the fact that he was born of the seed of David? Why did Paul add according to the flesh? It's sufficient to say, if, you, if, if all Paul was trying to suggest there was, was that Christ was a man... And later he's going to say, and he was God. Isn't it sufficient if he's 
saying right there in verse 3 that Christ is a man, that He was born of the seed of David, period. But instead, He goes on to say, according to the flesh. This leads us and leads some scholars to suggest that the words according to the flesh are indicative of the weakness and the limitation that Christ took upon Himself at the Incarnation. That is to say, not only was Christ born of the seed of David, not only was He a man, but He existed and put on Himself the limitations of human weakness. We see this in Philippians 2. He took on on the the form of of a slave, interestingly enough, according to Philippians 2. Uh, So this is not merely a statement about Christ's humanity, but also a statement about the limitations that Christ put upon Himself. Born of the seed of David, according to the human weakness, the limitations of the flesh, but now declared Son of God with power. A better translation of the word declared might mean designated or appointed. Um, Declared Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. That is to say, in the power of the Holy Spirit by virtue of His resurrection from the dead. Now we need to be very careful of the phrase declared to be the Son of God with power. Because in it, we might get the, the suspicion that, well, is, that, is Paul suggesting there that, that Christ wasn't the Son of God until the resurrection from the dead? Is that what he's suggesting? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Paul is not suggesting here that Jesus was not the Son of God until the resurrection. That's not his point. That's why the word designated or appointed is perhaps a little bit better. As a matter of fact, Jesus was called the Son of God early on in His earthly ministry. Does anybody remember the first time that Jesus was called Son in the Gospels? Anybody remember when it was? At His baptism. Thank you, John. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father looked down on Jesus the Son at His baptism and said from heaven, This is my beloved Son, the Son of God, in whom I am well pleased. So Paul is not suggesting here that Jesus wasn't the Son of God until the resurrection. No, Jesus has always been the Son of God. But here in Romans 1.5, a special designation is given. And we shouldn't lose sight of the words with power. Notice what it says. That He was declared or designated to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so here we see the the culmination of Paul's thinking. Earlier he had said that Jesus was man. He was born in the seed of David. That Jesus took upon Himself human weakness and limitations that it was according to the flesh. And now Paul is saying, oh, but now, because in virtue of the resurrection, He has been designated Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness. The weakness, the limitation, set aside. Christ has risen, and power is what describes Him now. Authority is what describes Him now. Three days after Jesus died on the cross, something great and something powerful happened. He rose. He rose. And we think, oh, it's the same old story. Okay, He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. We forget the power behind that moment. We forget the power of that event. He was crucified in weakness, yet He lives by the power of God. I want to show you a video about the power of Christ. Uh, it's a video that uh, some of you have seen, and I want, you to just, I want you to take in the emotion, because we should have an emotional response to the power of Christ. Take a look. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. 
That's my king. I, I wonder, do you know him? <laughs> my king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the lostest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. The powerful Son of God. The powerful Son of God. Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Paul tells Rome, you worship a powerful God. A powerful God. We close with verses 5 and 6. Finally, 7. Let's look at 5 and 6. Through Him, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among the nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. That is to say, through Christ, we, Paul, the apostles, have received grace and apostleship. Not all saints were apostles. Paul has received this grace, this apostolic gift, and he is a messenger for Jesus Christ. For what purpose? For the obedience to the faith among all nations for His name. To bring about, that is to say, to bring about obedience to the faith. If we were to translate this phrase literally, it would mean to bring about faith's obedience. To bring about faith's Obedience. Through Christ we have received grace 
and apostleship for faith's obedience among the nations for His name. Now, it's a unique phrase. It's only used by Paul. It's used both here and at the end of the book. Uh, neither of the contexts really give a, a, a clear and, and vivid understanding of what it means. And it's a hotly debated phrase. In fact, the great scholar uh, C.E.B. Cranfield noted no less than seven different interpretations of this phrase. Uh, faith's obedience or for obedience to the faith. Um, I want to say this very clearly. Whatever, whatever the obedience to the faith is, it is said to be Paul's apostolic mission. Let me say that again. Whatever the obedience to the faith is, it is said to be Paul's apostolic mission. And with that in mind, I want to propose two, two alternatives. First, and this is suggested by many, many scholars uh, on, on all sides. First, the obedience in view is faith itself. And in technical terms, this would be uh, t- spoken of as uh, uh, faith in opposition to obedience. So that he, Paul's describing obedience as faith. And this is not, in as much as, uh, in as, much as this church has a heritage of uh, extremely distinguishing these two concepts, and rightly so, faith is not obedience, and obedience is not faith. Uh, at the same time, there are passages in Scripture which speak at times, occasionally, of faith, as obedience. I refer you to the passages that are listed there, Romans 10, uh, 16 through 17, sorry, and, uh, or you can read 16 twice, and uh, Acts 6-7. I'm not going to turn there, I'm just going to let you turn there, uh, but I, I agree with that. There are occasions in the Scriptures where uh, faith is described as obedience. That is certainly not the norm, certainly not the norm, but it is a conceivable option here. Uh, and, and one theologian put it this way, When one believes the gospel, he has obeyed the gospel, since the gospel calls for a response of faith. I can't argue with that. That's absolutely true. When one believes the gospel, he has obeyed the gospel, since the gospel calls for a response of faith. And so in that sense, uh, faith can be understood as obedience. The second interpretive option is this, obedience that emanates from faith, emanates, flows from faith is motivated by. Now, we need to be careful with this interpretation as well. Make no mistake, while faith can be understood as an expression of obedience, faith is not obedience. Having said that, Christian obedience is intended to emanate from our faith. Having become a new creation by faith in Christ, we are called to go on to maturity in the spirit of that faith. I refer you to the passages listed there as well. Now, let me reiterate again, we're talking about Paul's mission, not about the realities or what, what happened as a result of his mission. We're talking about what Paul is trying to accomplish in the lives of the nations, his apostolic objective. And with that in mind, both of these options are very much in keeping with what Paul should be doing. Faith is an expression of obedience. And Paul's aim should be to get people to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and thus to believe it. Likewise, Paul's aim should not merely be to seek the justification of the lost, but he should also be concerned that new converts go on to live a life of obedience, to move on to a life of character that emanates and is motivated by their faith. After all, Jesus instructed the disciples, uh, His apostles to make disciples, teaching them to obey. We have two options before us, which properly understood are acceptable options for Romans 1.5. Uh, might Paul have left this phrase purposefully vague, that we might embrace both options? Uh, perhaps. Uh, but which is it? One, two, or both? Uh, I don't know. I cautiously lean toward number two there. But I'm certainly open to consideration. It's one of the few... You know, occasionally I'll say things like this that says, you know, both options are there, they're on the table, and there's just a great deal of debate among scholarship on this one. I cautiously lean toward number two. Paul's ultimate apostolic objective, his ultimate objective, is not merely to bring people to justification, but to bring about their holiness and obedience to Christ. Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 7, and we're done. 
To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. The Gentile greeting for, hey, how's it going? Means rejoice, means grace, means gift, gift to you, grace to you. That was the Gentile greeting. And peace, shalom, that was the Jewish greeting. It's not without, uh, it's not without intent that Paul always uses that phrase. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give you the Gentile greeting. I give you the Jewish greeting because you're a Jew- Jewish in a Gentile church. And did you catch that at the start of verse 7? To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. In verse 7, Paul identifies, finally, who he is writing to. And so if this were the equivalent of a letter written in English, you might say, I just preached on everything in this letter that come before the words, Dear Rome. That was meant to be kind of funny. What comes before Dear Rome in a letter in English? Nothing, exactly. So basically everything I just preached is totally meaningless. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, but really, he waits a while to say dear Rome. But anyway, so we just preached on everything that comes before the deer in a letter. That is how powerful this letter is, though. Before the deer, Rome, we just went through an unbelievable treatment of Christian teaching and doctrine. That's how powerful Romans is. That's how profound it is. It is preparing us to tear down fortresses of knowledge that is opposed to the knowledge of God. So bring your Bibles, bring your pens, take notes, study to show thyself an approved worker who does not need to be ashamed of the Word of truth. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is Your book for Coast Bible Church today. As we begin Romans, we need Your help, we need Your guidance, we need Your power and Your understanding. Lord, show us the way through this book, through this letter, precious that it is, powerful that it is. Help us to get excited about it, Lord, and at the same time to recognize that what we are reading is something the enemy does not wish us to read. He does not wish us to be equipped in this way. So help us to, by Your Spirit, persevere, be diligent to study, be diligent to learn, that we might be prepared to give an answer to all who ask for the hope that is in us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.